afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, my name is uh, Nico Lassetera. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. And today I'm going to talk about the economics and ethics of paying plasma donors. Uh, first of all, I hope all of you are safe and fine. And let me express my sympathy uh, for any of you or people you know were uh, directly or indirectly affected by uh, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak and pandemic. I also want to acknowledge that for thousands of years, the land where I work and live has been the traditional land of the Euron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently of the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this land is home to many indigenous people, and I'm grateful to, for the opportunity to work on this land. Turns out that we are in the middle of National uh, Blood Donor Week uh, in Canada. Uh, it's a week where uh, we celebrate uh, blood donors and advocate for people to, uh, to donate uh, blood. And the week actually culminates on this Sunday, uh, June 14, in World Blood Donor Day, which is an initiative of uh, the World Health Organization. So uh, talking about uh, how to motivate and the ethics and economics around, uh, behind it, blood uh, donations and the donation of uh, blood parts, blood components, turns out to be very timely uh, right now. Why should we talk about these issues? Why should we care? Well, it turns out that uh, for many medical conditions, uh, treatments come from human body uh, parts and typically not the body of the person in need for treatment, but other people who donate uh, this part. I wanna focus mostly on body fluids in this, uh, in this talk and especially blood and plasma, which is the, um, the liquid part uh, of, uh, of blood. Uh, we use blood transfusions for, uh, you know, to treat many conditions, several types of cancers, several types of blood diseases like sickle cell disease. Uh, during surgeries, uh, many patients need, uh, in some cases, massive uh, blood transfusions, for example, in case of uh, uh, organ transplants, uh, for the treatment of premature babies and their moms, and of course, in case of uh, accidents where there is massive bleeding uh, as well, approximately 16 to 17 million units of blood are collected in the US every year and about one to two million uh, in, um, in Canada. Uh, there are a number of reasons why quite often, uh, both in the developed world, but also in the, uh, especially actually in the developing world, there is a tension between the demand and supply uh, for blood and we might incur the risk of shortages. So first of all, at the moment, there aren't many substitutes for blood. Uh, for human blood, for these, uh, these treatments. Uh, we can only uh, store blood for a relatively small period of time, around 42 days. Uh, a number of technical advances, especially in uh, organ transplantations and the aging of the population are increasing the demand uh, of blood uh, for transfusions, although other advances, eventually maybe artificial blood might actually reduce uh, the need of human blood. And also, uh, you know, very often we think of blood transfusions as occurring in case of accidents, uh, so relatively random, if you want, uh, episodes, but most of the use of blood for transfusion is for predictable, chronic, stable situations from cancers, blood diseases, surgeries, and so on. And so if the demand is pretty stable over time, the, the supply tends to be seasonal when it's very cold, people don't go out, 
and on it, their, their blood in the winter, during the summer, you know, people are traveling on vacations and so they may be less likely. And this together to the fact that, you know, you cannot uh, store the blood for a long time might also increase, uh, um, increase shortage. And so there is a need to motivate more and more people to donate blood. How about plasma? So plasma, as I said, is the uh, liquid part uh, of, uh, of blood and it can be extracted from a whole blood donations. This is called recovered plasma or by a procedure which is called uh, plasmapheresis. And in this case, we talk about source plasma. This procedure, uh, the donor gets both, you know, the whole blood drawn and then uh, there is a machine basically that separates plasma from uh, the more solid part of blood. Uh, and that part goes back into the, uh, the donor, uh, the donor uh, system, the donor, uh, the donor body. Uh, plasma consists of water, salts, number of enzymes, antibodies, immunoglobulins, uh, several proteins such as albumin, and several functions in the body, for example, blood clotting and it fights uh, a number of, uh, of infections. Uh, plasma can be uh, used uh, either through direct uh, transfusion into a patient or also uh, processed and used for the production of the several uh, therapies through pro uh, procedures called fractionations. And there are a number of diseases, especially chronic diseases uh, for which plasma is uh, is extremely useful. In fact, some people call it the gift of life to give plasma, uh, primary immunodeficiency, hemophilia, genetic lung disease, uh, the treatment of trauma for burns, shock, uh, for example. And also it's used to treat uh, infections for people, for example, exposed to tetanus prone wounds in case they're not vaccinated for, uh, for tetanus. In fact, the first Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine went to Emil Bering uh, about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago. And uh, uh, he received the, uh, the prize because of his work demonstrated that plasma therapies or serum therapies, as they're also called, could be used for the treatment of, uh, of diphtheria. Producing all this Plasma-based therapies uh, required a large, large number of plasma donations. And this is where uh, the tension in the case of plasma between demand and supply uh, emerges mostly. Just to give an example for the treatment of one patient uh, with hemophilia in a year, a single year, single patient, we need 1,200. Uh, plasma uh, donations. So you can imagine how large the quantities are on a global, on a global level. Some of these therapies are also quite expensive. Uh, uh, therapies, you know, based on uh, plasma product might reach, for example, $200,000 of expenses of cost per, uh, per year. And this, to put it all together, you know, builds, uh, you know, a big industry. Some estimates define the uh, global plasma market just for fractionation, so uh, process plasma for, uh, for drugs, uh, to be about $70 billion uh, currently with the rapid growth that might bring it to about 30 billion uh, in seven or eight years from, uh, from now. Uh, recently, there has been uh, also an increasing attention about 
the role and the use of plasma because of the COVID-19 uh, outbreaks, uh, because uh, uh, the plasma, uh, plasma is rich with antibodies, uh, there is a belief that it can be used to treat, uh, to treat patients who contracted COVID-19. There were already some uh, attempts uh, a few years ago during uh, the Ebola virus, virus uh, outbreaks, 2013 to 2016. Uh, and there had been uh, attempts both by the use, direct use of convalescent plasma, so the plasma of patients who recovered uh, from uh, from the disease, both through uh, direct uh, transfusion, but also uh, with the production, for example, of you know the isolation of hyperimmune immunoglobulins. Uh, we still don't have you know those kind of studies that researchers like the most large sample randomized controlled trials. There have been small sample studies that seem quite uh, uh, quite promising also for the treatment of uh, COVID-19. And that's why several patients uh, who contracted COVID-19 and uh, thankfully recovered are now donating uh, their, uh, their plasma quite regularly. Uh, you need several donations and several organizations, hospitals, and so on set up infrastructure to uh, uh, essentially store and freeze uh, this plasma for potential use and for, uh, for processing. There is one major difference across countries or even jurisdictions within a country in the uh, allocation and especially the procurement of, uh, of plasma. One main difference is that in some countries, uh, donors, those who give their plasma or supply their plasma are compensated uh, for each of their uh, donation. And uh, there is a for-profit plasma collection and uh, uh, processing industry. Uh, whereas many other countries prohibit uh, payments uh, to donors and also do not have a sort of private uh, industry or for-profit business uh, industry for uh, the collection and um, uh, the processing of plasma. Countries that uh, allow for payments include the United States in particular, but also other countries such as the Czech Republic or uh, Austria, but the majority of other countries actually prohibit any form of uh, payment, including Canada, uh, as far as the main provinces uh, go, such as Quebec, uh, Ontario and British Columbia, uh, Alberta as well, it is uh, allowed to pay donors and to set up for-profit plasma centers, for example, in, uh, in uh, Saskatchewan. It is Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec, who are the organization uh, in Canada uh, who collect, that collect, uh, that collect uh, plasma. There is a long history of opposition uh, to uh, paying uh, plasma as well as blood donors around the world. Uh, perhaps uh, the origin of this, uh, uh, of this approach, this view comes from a, a book that uh, Richard Titmus, a social scientist uh, in, the, in the UK published in the early uh, 1970s, where he said that Sure, we might think of payments as a way to motivate donors uh, to donate more or more donors to donate. So a way to sort of solve imbalances between demand and supply. But hey, let's be very careful because actually this form of procurement can uh, backfire and can backfire for a number of reasons. First of all, 
what are the motivations for people to donate their blood? Maybe they do it precisely because it's free, because it's an act of you know, voluntary giving. And as soon as you put a price on it, actually people's motivations might change and they might even resent it. And so, uh, for example, move their, uh, their willingness to have their charitable activities to, uh, to other goals, to other, uh, to other activities altogether. So actually there may, there may be what uh, social scientists call a motivational crowding out. Another issue might have to do with what sometimes we call adverse selection. So the question here uh, that Kitmus uh, advanced was, who will be the people who would be uh, willing to donate for, for compensation? Well, it may be people who are more marginalized, who are more in need of immediate money. And it could be, these could be people who are more likely to have contracted certain diseases of you know, having had certain behavior that might affect the quality or the safety of, uh, of their blood. Uh, the issue at the time was especially uh, with uh, hepatitis uh, and the possibility to transmit it to uh, recipients of blood or, uh, or plasma. But there was also in Titmus' work uh, a series of more a sort of deeper, uh, more fundamental reasons that have to do with ethics and the social support of certain markets. Uh, by paying donor, we might actually exploit uh, these, these donors, take advantage of them, or the presence of a payment by uh, um, might sort of generate some sort of undue influence or coercion, especially on those more marginalized or in lower socioeconomic strata of, uh, of the population. There might be also a risk of commodifying the human body or part of it to put a price of something that we consider sacred. And this might lead to a slippery slope in which we give up certain fundamental values that hold uh, societies together. And this might definitely not, uh, not be worthwhile. The shadow of Titmus uh, views loomed really large in the legislations of many countries for, for decades and, uh, and affected the way uh, in many countries today, the, the procurement and allocation of blood and plasma uh, works. In the case of Canada, from where I'm talking, uh, of course, there were also some events in the 80s uh, that uh, sort of increased the attention toward the safety in particular of plasma. There was a major uh, scandal uh, with about 2000 recipients of blood and blood products who contracted HIV uh, in the early 80s uh, because uh, the blood or the blood parts were contaminated and another about 30,000 transfusion recipient actually were infected with hepatitis C uh, as a consequence of their, uh, uh, of their transfusion. Uh, again, in the, uh, in the 80s, and many of these people actually had uh, very negative health consequences, including, uh, including death. Uh, there was a commission that was established in Canada led by Justice Horace Crever. And the commission was uh, very articulated. There is a very nice book by the health journalist Andre Picard called The Gift of Death sort of a way to paraphrase uh, the view of you know, donating blood and plasma as being the gift of life that goes through the detail of what this commission did. And uh, uh, there were many reasons, but for some reason, the public attention uh, focused a lot on one of the recommendations of the commission in the late uh, 90s 
about banning uh, payments to, uh, to donors because that might increase the risk, the safety risk of, uh, of the blood. Uh, and so laws uh, banning uh, for-profit plasma centers and payment to donors were enacted in many, in many provinces. Uh, recently, there have been also debates uh, at the federal level to uh, extend uh, this ban uh, to, to the whole country. The debate is still, uh, is still uh, there. For example, in Alberta, uh, a member of the Legislative Assembly may soon propose to repeal uh, the, uh, what is called the Voluntary Blood Donations Act, which uh, prohibit payments and the establishment of for-profit uh, for centers. It turns out though that there is also a view uh, that is very concerned about the potential imbalance between the demand and supply of plasma uh, in particular, and is actually advocating strongly to reconsider uh, the, uh, the possibility of paying donors in Canada and elsewhere around, uh, around the world. Uh, there are a number of ethicists, economists, uh, observers, and so on, pointing out that the evidence, for example, of motivational crowding out, the idea that if you uh, compensate uh, donors, they will actually be less likely to donate because somewhat there will be a contrast of uh, uh, of motivations is really not borne out in the data. Uh, there is some uh, evidence from uh, blood donations in particular, some of which uh, I, together with a number of co-authors, have uh, produced through a number of uh, uh, experiments and uh, retrospective data analysis showing that actually providing certain forms of rewards going from gift cards, uh, vouchers, but also allowing for a day of work, which is what happens, for example, uh, in Italy, actually leads to more uh, uh, blood donations. We don't have that kind of sort of randomized control-like evidence for plasma uh, thus far, but to the extent that there is a similarity between donating blood and plasma, then uh, what one might make some inferences. It's also the case, and this is not, you know, in a sense, strongly scientific evidence, that those countries that have a surplus of plasma, especially for fractionation use, and actually are exporting plasma to many other countries in the world, including countries who prohibit payments, are those who actually allow payments. The US, some people call the US the Saudi Arabia of plasma because it's actually a net exporter. And many countries, including Canada, uh, depend strongly on uh, the US. For example, in Canada, about 80 to 85% of the immunoglobulin used uh, come uh, from paid plasma donors uh, in, uh, in the US. We are around 40 to 45% for Australia, just to give uh, another example. Of course, we cannot infer directly that paying uh, you know, generates a surplus, but you know, it's pretty compelling evidence that perhaps uh, by paying more donors uh, are actually uh, ever intention to, uh, to donate. The safety argument, of course, is one that concerns most people. Uh, and those who are actually in favor of payment, or at least in favor of considering payment, point out that from the, for example, the Crever commissions and what happened in Canada in particular, it's really unclear whether the problem was really uh, payments as opposed to, for example, the lack of proper screening 
and even a lack of the use of certain technologies for screening uh, potential infections that were actually still available, for example, uh, in the 80s. It's also the case that in the last 20 years, uh, the manufacturing process uh, for plasma product has made uh, so many, so much progress that haven't been, that there haven't been any cases of contamination. There is a very, uh, you know, very high ability to uh, inactivate a number of uh, contaminants. For example, there have been a few cases of uh, contagions through blood donations for, you know, for the West Nile virus, but no cases at all uh, for uh, plasma, especially processed plasma, plasma used for fractionation. So new technologies have an ability to eliminate a high number of pathogens to an extent that makes the safety issue uh, maybe less compelling. And in fact, as I said, uh, many countries rely on plasma uh, produced uh, in, uh, in the US where donors uh, are paid because they uh, sort of trust uh, and they're confident that those uh, procedures to, uh, to isolate and inactivate contaminants and pathogens are actually extremely, uh, extremely effective. As for the ethical issues, uh, those who propose uh, to consider payments point out that it's not, not so clear that paying donors is actually exploitative. At the end of the day, they receive a payment. The production, the, the procedure uh, to collect plasma, you know, is you know takes time and it's a little painful. So maybe it requires some form of compensation. But at the end of the day, it's not too invasive uh, according to uh, to these people uh, as compared to the payments, which go from thirty to fifty dollars, uh, more, more or less. And at the end of the day, when we talk about commodification of the human body or activities around you know, the collection of body parts for medical use, everybody's paid, the doctors, medical staff, nurses, and so on. Uh, so why not also compensate those who actually provide uh, the raw material, uh, uh, the blood? And even uh, sort of going a little further to the extent that developed countries have a moral duty to support and help countries who are more in need, whose uh, uh, medical system, healthcare system is less uh, developed, less advanced, maybe also have the moral duty uh, to collect as much plasma as possible in order to help also countries where this is more difficult, uh, more difficult to do. And perhaps uh, given the use uh, of plasma to address uh, certain infectious diseases, uh, maybe this you know, plasma is even a strategic product. So guaranteeing a national supply uh, might actually be a security uh, issue for, uh, for a country. Together with Mario Machis, we actually decided to move beyond the opinion of, if you want, an elite of policymakers, ethicists, and economists and go and ask people uh, what they think about, uh, about paying uh, plasma donors. And we did in Canada, a country that, as I said, prohibit payments almost everywhere. And uh, we ran a survey on a representative sample uh, of about 900 people. And we actually asked them uh, what they thought about, uh, uh, about legalizing payments. And about three quarters of them, around 75%, uh, showed support to introduce payments for, uh, for donors. 
and the main reason we also asked, you know, why there was support was that this would guarantee a higher uh, domestic supply. So there is a sense that more supply is good and protects the country uh, better. Interestingly, the about 25% who uh, uh, showed opposition had different motives uh, and they had to do with ethical issues. So people believe that paying plasma donors would uh, be in contrast with the main sort of fundamental values of Canadians, uh, Canadian society. And they also express concern for, uh, for safety, although perhaps this is an issue of misinformation because as I said, the technology now in place are such that there is no difference whatsoever in uh, the risk of plasma coming from paid or unpaid, uh, unpaid donors. In fact, we also asked those who were against uh, payment whether they would change their mind in case there was a shortage, a supply shortage uh, of blood uh, in uh, of plasma, sorry, in uh, in Canada. And actually, half of them uh, said that in that case they would be in favor uh, of uh, of paying donor to increase uh, to increase supply. So overall, if we sum up. Uh, the about 75% in favor and the 12 to 13% who would change their mind from being in, uh, against to being in favor. It looks as though most Canadians adopt a consequentialist view uh, regarding paying plasma donors. So yes, there may be some sort of moral dilemmas to solve some ethical issues to take care of, but at the end of the day, if this allows for a higher supply, well, maybe it's, uh, it's worth it. Uh, of course, there are also many other things that uh, scholars, researchers would need to look at uh, to figure out you know, the overall effect of paying plasma donors. For example, a concern that some people have is that if we pay uh, uh, for plasma, then people who normally donate blood might actually uh, shift to donate only plasma for certain uses. And so there may be a net zero effect uh, in some sense. This is plausible. Uh, some initial evidence shows that this is not the case. Maybe we're talking about different populations, but definitely there is need for more work to understand how people substitute between different uh, altruistic activities when some provide more benefits, more rewards uh, than, uh, than others. We also need to understand, and I think this is a very important point, uh, we need to understand where the opposition come from, comes from. Is it about the payments per se? Is it about the type of payment? What if uh, instead of cash, direct cash, uh, donors would receive gift cards or vouchers, discounts and so on? Is it about the amount? Is it too much? Is it too little? Uh, or maybe it's not really about payment, but is it about the organization of the industry altogether? Would we be more comfortable if uh, the companies uh, dealing with the collection and the processing of plasma were actually non-profit or even a publicly owned company uh, owned by the government. And this would make payments actually uh, more acceptable than if there was, for example, a for-profit industry uh, behind. So all these things uh, are useful to understand what determine the social support for payments. And we still uh, don't have that kind of information and definitely I hope 
uh, that scholars will pay uh, attention to it. And of course, in the wake of the COVID pandemic, uh, it would be interesting to see whether opinions, both of the general population, but also of policymakers, uh, might actually evolve uh, in one direction or uh, another in response to the fact that we might experience a further increase in the demand uh, in the demand for uh, uh, for plasma. And so. Uh, Overall, we see that there is an interesting and deep debate on how to sort of set up procurement and allocation systems that address the potential so shortage of, uh, of plasma, but at the same time abide by some prevailing moral values uh, in a society. And the fact that we see these different uh, setups, uh, arrangements in different countries, some allowing payments, some not allowing payment, even very similar countries for legal origins, tradition, culture, and so on, speaks to the fact that we are talking about delicate uh, questions about what define a trade, a market, as uh, to use the words of uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, Arot, repugnant. That is a market that, uh, even though it doesn't uh, generate negative effects to others directly, society as a whole uh, prefers to uh, to ban to uh, to prohibit uh, all uh, altogether. So on the one hand, we need to uh, to deal with these deep questions, but also uh, make sure that we ask people, you know, constituencies, what they think, what the public opinion uh, is, the sort of public view the, uh, about about different transactions, about morally charged topics. Eventually, in a representative democracy, uh, policymakers always have the prerogative to go against the prevailing position in, uh, in a population if they feel that's the best course of action. But uh, it's always a good starting point to consider the evidence, to consider different positions, and to try to find the balance between what the evidence says, what the different views are uh, in a society, and also especially in case of pandemics uh, that uh, concern the whole world on a global uh, on a global level. So this is all I had to say uh, today. Uh, let me close by reiterating the importance of donating, not just in Blood Donor Week on Blood Donor uh, World Blood Donor Day on Sunday. Uh, I've been donating blood and plasma as well uh, for quite a long time, but in this moment, I'm in a sort of stateless position. I used to donate in Italy, where I am from, uh, but now, you know, living in Canada, in North America, in Canada for a long time, I cannot donate because I lived in Europe during the uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy crisis, uh, the Metcow disease, and so there is still a chance that you know my blood might be affected according to North American authorities, and so I'm banned from donate. And as it turns out, that I cannot even donate when I go back uh, and visit family in Italy. Uh, because Italian authorities and blood plasma donor organizations are afraid that my blood might contain the West Nile virus, and uh, which is hard, as I mentioned earlier, to um, to isolate and neutralize in uh, in whole blood. So I cannot donate anymore, unfortunately. But if you can, if you're healthy, if you're up to it and not too needle phobic, let me leave you with uh, this encouragement to go out and donate blood or plasma. Thank you so much.